And you can see in your bulletin that we're turning now to Psalm 100. Let's get our bearings as we turn there. Our sermon series these days is what I'm calling the Habits of Grace. That's the theme that we're exploring lately, the Christian life that we're called to live. It is a life that's all about our experience of the grace of God. And we experience that grace in part as he blesses our own regular, even rhythmic efforts to seek and serve him, the habits of grace. And remember, our passage last week, as we've been making our way through that theme, was Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, because one of the habits of the Christian life is going to church going to be with the church on Sundays to worship God. So what did we hear last week in Hebrews 10? He writes, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So just those two verses last Sunday, but there was a lot in them. We ransacked those two verses for the five verbs in them, like stir, stir up one another to love and good works. Why? Because our love can settle and our commitment to good works can run low. Stir. Also meet, meet together. Why? Because that's what the church is. The church is, by definition, an assembly. The church is a people that gets together, and so we meet. And also, encourage. Why? Because for a host of reasons, we can find ourselves discouraged since we were last here. The world and the flesh and the devil can do that. Encourage. And also, consider. Consider how to stir and meet and encourage. Be thoughtful about it. Be deliberate about it. Consider. And finally, see, because he says, do all of this all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Christ's return, that day of revelation and judgment and redemption. And because it's going to be a day like that, well, then let's get together on Sundays and get ready and practice communing with Christ. So that was last week. Hebrews 10. And so our focus last week was on, well, what we're doing right now, which is making it the good habit of meeting together on Sundays for the worship of God. And that brings us to this week, Psalm 100. Every week, every Sunday morning, the very first thing that happens in the worship service is the call to worship. It's the very first thing that's listed there in your bulletin every Sunday, the call to worship. And over the years, you may have noticed this. There's a group of Bible passages that I use Sunday after Sunday to come up with the call to worship. I have a rotation. A group of Bible passages in which God summons his people into his presence in order to give him his praise. I've got a rotation. And over the years, you may have noticed this, one of the passages in that group is Psalm 100. 
It was our call to worship this morning, and I did that on purpose, to tie everything together. Psalm 100. So let me read it for us. A psalm for giving thanks. Hear now the word of God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this very call to come, to come into your presence. And here we are. And now that we've come, would you give us ears to hear your voice again? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had the opportunity to meet some famous person, someone whose work you've long admired, someone who's achieved heights in their field, someone who's known far and wide, someone that a lot of people out there would prize the opportunity to meet, who would it be for you, I wonder? For me, I think it might be Paul McCartney or Paul Simon, just some songwriter named Paul. If you had the opportunity to meet that person, it would be perfectly natural for you to be wondering in the back of your mind, and you might even say so, you might even ask the question out loud, does this person really want to meet me? Are you sure about this? My heart's in on this. I'm thrilled at the prospect, but is their heart in on it too? How do I know that I'm not going to be ushered into their presence only to find by the look on their face, by their body language, by their lack of eye contact, by their lack of acknowledgement, that they've got no interest whatsoever in me being there and they can't wait for me to leave? How can I be sure that it's not going to be like that? Well, imagine how reassuring it would be in that moment, in that moment of of doubt and reluctance and perhaps shrinking back, how reassuring it would be to be told, don't you understand, they asked for you. They asked for you to come and meet them. They asked for you by name. And they're in that room right now, through those doors, waiting for you. Don't you understand? They called for you. And church, we get to experience something like that 
every Sunday morning, round about 9 a.m., when we get to hear, as a church, the call to worship. It's God's weekly way of saying, I want you here. I've called you here. You're not barging into my presence uninvited. You're not going to find that I can't wait for you to leave. I've called you here. As I said before, I've got this rotation, this group of Bible passages that I use to come up with a call to worship Sunday after Sunday, and one of them is the psalm we've just heard. Psalm 100. And so what I thought we'd do today would be to reflect upon this one psalm, to see what's in it, and to use this as an opportunity to think together about what it means to be called to worship. And you see how this follows on last Sunday. Last Sunday it was Hebrews 10, don't neglect to meet together, don't get into that bad habit. Well, now this Sunday at Psalm 100, it reinforces that. One of the reasons why, positively, we want to get into the good habit of meeting together is the realization that our God calls us to this. And we're simply heeding his call. So, Psalm 100. This psalm isn't long. It's only five verses. But it says a lot. In its five verses. One way of thinking about it, one way of approaching it, and this is how we're going to approach it together this morning, is to notice that this psalm is a combination of statements of fact and summons to obedience. Those two. And it goes back and forth between them. Statements of fact and summons to obedience. The two terms that the theologians will sometimes use to refer to those two are these terms, the indicative and the imperative. There's nothing magical about those terms, but they're useful in part because they both begin with I. The indicative, that refers to statements of fact, affirmations of what's true, what's real, what is the indicative. And upon that foundation rest the imperatives, summons to obedience. In other words, what you ought to do, how you ought to live, how you ought to act. So the indicative and the imperative. And Psalm 100 is a combination of the two of them. And so we'll make our way that way together now. Let's think about the indicative, these statements of fact, and then notice the imperatives that are built upon them. So first of all, the indicatives in Psalm 100, statements of fact. What does this psalm affirm to be true, to be real? Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. Know that the Lord, He is God. That's what's true. That's what's real. The title Lord, there in verse 3, it shows up in all capital letters in our English Bibles. And remember what that means when you see it looking like that 
on the page or on your screen. What that means is that the Hebrew that's being translated there is the name that Israel knew to call their God, the name Yahweh, as it is sometimes pronounced. It was a name that set him apart from the other gods because he was the only one who was called that. It was his unique name. And it was a name that set Israel apart from the other nations because it was a name that he gave them to call him as his covenant people, his chosen people, the name Yahweh. So the statement of fact that's being made there in verse 3 is this. Israel's God is the real thing. Yahweh really is God. The gods of the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the rest of them, please. Gods like Baal and Molech and Dagon and the rest of them, don't get me started. Israel's God is the real thing. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians where he says, oh, there are a lot of so-called gods. There are many of them. But for us, there's one. We know there's only one. Israel's God is the real thing. Christian church today, our God is the real thing. And that's being affirmed there in verse 3. And then notice how verse 3 keeps going. Take a look again. Verse 3, it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So this God, who's the only God that really is, staggering to think, he has made us his own. He's made us his own people. And that's put here literally, we are his people. It's also put here metaphorically, we are his sheep. We are the sheep of his pasture. And we're not offended by that. We don't bristle at that. We actually embrace that. Because what it means is that he knows us. He guides us. He provides for us. He protects us as a good shepherd does. So we boast in this. We are the sheep of his pasture. And then skip down. Look at the last verse, verse 5. Here again, another statement of fact. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. He's good. In other words, he's kind. He's generous. He's large-hearted. He takes delight in blessing. He's good. And he is that not just right now. Not just for a while, but forever. So you see there in Psalm 100, these indicatives, these statements of fact. Our God's the real thing, and he's ours, and we are his, and he's good, and he is that forever. Indicative, statements of fact. So that brings us secondly then to the imperative. If all of that's true, and it is, if all of those statements of fact that we've just noticed are actually factual, and they are, well then, what are you going to do about it? More to the point, 
What are you called to do in light of those statements of fact? And the answer here in Psalm 100 is this. We are called to worship. We're called to worship. And that's really where the psalm begins. Look at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So this is a call that goes out far and wide to the four corners of the globe. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Look again now at verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Verse 2. Skip down to verse 4. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So you put all of that together. And we are called to worship. We ought to praise him. Including praising him by singing to him. We ought to give thanks to him. Because he's good and we know that he's been good to us. And all of that, the psalm says, we ought to do with joy and gladness. Because in Christ Jesus, we have got great cause for joy. He died for us. He lives for us. We're forgiven in him. We're renewed in him. Joy and gladness. So that coming to worship like this on Sundays, it ought to be a habit with our hearts in it. Joy and gladness. And notice this too. Who's the one who does the calling here? That's worth thinking about. We've just noticed the imperative. We're called to worship. Who's the caller? Well, above all, the answer is it's God who does the calling. God himself calls us to worship him. After all, this is scripture. This isn't just some ancient poem we stumbled on. This is God's word. And it was God's word to his people then, and it still is to us today. God himself calls us to worship him, and that's the main thing. But then notice this as well. Think about this. Some human being wrote this poem. We don't know who it was. We don't know who wrote Psalm 100. But some believer wrote it. The implication is there's a sense in which We're called by one another to do this. That's not the main thing. The main thing is that God calls us. But the way that God calls us is in part through the voice of the church. And that happens here on Sundays. Every Sunday morning, I read the call to worship up here in the pulpit. It's my voice that you're hearing. And I read it, you might say, on behalf of the elders of this church who have ordered the worship service to begin that way. And more fully than that, I read it as an expression of the will of the whole congregation because this is something that we're all committed to. So ultimately, above all, God calls us. That's the main thing. And on a lower level, We do call one another to this. As a church, we say to one another, and some Sundays this is our call to worship, come, let us worship and bow down. 
So I'm reading the call to worship up here in the pulpit. And all around you, as it's being read, are your brothers and sisters who in their hearts and who by their very presence here with you are adding their amen. And so are we called. And that's the imperative. Worship God. Worship God the way we're doing right now. So that's, that's our psalm here this morning, Psalm 100. We've noticed the, the indicatives, the statements of fact that are to be found here. We've noticed the imperative, which is worship him. Worship him because those things are true of him. So now we can take a step back from it. As I said a few minutes ago, this becomes an opportunity for us to think together about what it means to be called to worship in light of everything we've just seen in this psalm. It becomes an opportunity for us to think together about the way our worship service gets started every Sunday. It's the very first thing every Sunday, the call to worship. And I want to say to you, you should feel the weight, the significance of it. The call to worship matters. And the reason it matters is is the weight, the significance of the activity that we're about to be engaged in when you hear it. And everything we've just seen in Psalm 100 pays off now. And think about it. At 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, we're about to go into the presence of God together. The only God that really is. And he's our God. And he's good forever and ever. We're about to go into the presence of God to praise him, to sing to him, to give thanks to him. Everything that we've just seen in Psalm 100. And because that's what we're about to do, which is so weighty and wonderful and glorious, well then, you should want to hear his voice calling you in. The call to worship matters, and it should matter to you. To put it plainly, providence permitting, as you're able, you should be here in your seats, ready and listening when that call is read. Now, as soon as I say that, I also want to say this. I understand. I get it. I do Believe me, I do. There are times when you just can't get out of the house as early as you'd like, as early as you need to, for some commitment that you've got on the calendar. I get it. I do. I realize that to launch into this topic is an ever so slightly awkward topic, but as they say on TV, we can embrace the awkward. We're all friends here. I get it. I understand. Mama said there'd be days like that. And that's true when it comes to church on Sunday morning. It's no exception. It happens. And not only that, but for you, it might be a whole season in life and not just one Sunday here and there. For you, it could be something that's going on right now in your life or in your family's life that makes it exceedingly difficult for you Sunday after Sunday to be here before the service gets started. Again, I get it. I understand. But I am going to challenge you here this morning in this way. 
If you find that you're regularly missing the call to worship at the beginning of the service, whether that's here in the hall or even tuning in via Facebook at home, if you're regularly missing it because you're not here in time, ask yourself why. That's all. Just start there. Ask yourself why. And is it the case that you're regularly missing it because you haven't rightly felt the weight and the significance of what's happening in that moment when the call is read? And if that's the case, that you're not feeling the weight of that one moment, Is that because you haven't rightly felt the weight, the significance of the solemn, wonderful, glorious, fearful, joyful activity that is linking arms with your fellow church members and actually going into the presence of the Almighty? So that it matters tremendously to you to be reminded in that moment that he's called you in and you're not barging in. If you're regularly missing the call to worship, just start there by asking yourself those kinds of questions and see where it goes. And maybe where it goes is simply making some practical changes in the way that you go about Saturday night and Sunday morning so that you're here for it. So that's all. Ask yourself those questions and see where it goes. And and maybe that's where it leads you. And let me also say, I do understand, as the one who reads it Sunday after Sunday, that the call to worship doesn't take long. Even if you are in your seats here when it happens, if you blink, you might miss it. It would have to be a rather long blink. But it's true, it doesn't take long. And so I fully understand you might be thinking, why all of this fuss about something that can be measured in seconds? Is this much ado about something short. I'll give you an illustration. Years ago, when I was treated for cancer, that fall, daily radiation treatments were part of the program. And I I remember it vividly. Five days a week, four straight weeks, I would go to the George Washington University Hospital for radiation, Monday through Friday, for four straight weeks. That was my October. And so every day, I'd have to get in the car, drive into D.C., often at rush hour, or sometimes down from Philadelphia into D.C., make my way to where the hospital was, park the car, walk to the hospital, walk through the hospital, wind my way to radiology, find the waiting room, take my seat in the waiting room, wait in the waiting room, wait for my name to be called. Finally, they call it. Finally, I go in and they prep me for treatment and I'm all wrapped up where I need to be wrapped up and I'm all marked up where I need to be marked up and everyone else leaves the room and there's a pause and then I hear... And I remember the first time I heard that and that's about as long as it took 
And that's when the door opens and people start filing in again and they're unwrapping me and saying, okay, Mr. Wolf, you're free to go. We'll see you tomorrow. That's it. And at that point, a kind of dialogue began to go on in my mind. I wanted to say, what do you mean, that's all? All I got was, and they'd have said, yeah, that that was it. That, That was the treatment. And I'd have said, no, I thought that was just step one. When do we do the treatment? And they'd have said, no, Mr. Wolf, that was it. That was the treatment. And I'd have said, oh, no, 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 no. That wasn't it. Not after everything I went to get here. Let me tell you everything I went through to get here. I want 60 minutes of that. And they'd have said, no, you really don't. Mr. Wolf, go home or drive back to Philadelphia or wherever it is you need to go. And we'll see you tomorrow for your next very brief. But you get the idea, those very brief zaps, to use the technical medical term. Those very brief zaps helped save my life. Here's the point, and maybe you get the point. There are some moments whose duration can be measured in mere seconds, but whose potency goes way beyond the number of seconds they take. There are some moments that can be measured in mere seconds, but whose potency, whose value, whose significance goes way beyond the number of seconds they take. And the call to worship is one of them. So I know it doesn't last long. And you know what? It doesn't matter how long it lasts. What matters is what it amounts to, what it represents. What it amounts to is the sound of the voice of the Almighty calling you calling us as a church into his awful, wonderful presence to give him his praise. What it represents is the sound of your heavenly Father calling you, calling us as his children into his gracious presence in order to receive from his hand. The very thought of that, the very thought at 9 a.m. that that's what we're about to do for the next 80 minutes or so, coming into the very presence of our God and Father who's majestic and merciful, that should make you tremble in such a way that you want to hear him call you in. So long as you're listening, it doesn't have to take long for you to get from it the reassurance that you crave. And I do want to underscore the element of grace in this. And I'll wrap up with this. There's grace here. Remember the last verse in the psalm? The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Well, think about the grace of God when it comes to the call to worship. It really is a habit of grace that you make a point to be here for it. Because... He's calling you in 
So that in these minutes, he can be gracious to you again. I'll give you another illustration. This one by way of contrast. I remember when I was a kid, the Wizard of Oz. I was a little freaked out by the witch, but I I could handle the witch. I was all right with that. I was a little unsettled by the flying monkeys, but I I can handle the flying monkeys. But the scene that was my undoing as a kid was the moment. (coughs) See, I'm getting verklempt just thinking about it. It's the moment when they're walking down that hallway toward the chamber of the wizard. That's what got me. I think it was years before I saw any of the movie after that as I bolted the room. To this day, I leave the room and... Christy has to call me back in. It's okay, Paul. It's over now. There's something about the way they're making their way down that hallway, trembling. The lion clearly doesn't want to go in, but he's, he's speaking for all of them, maybe even Toto too. And why? Because they couldn't be sure that he was gracious. They'd heard that he was the beneficent Oz. But at that point, they couldn't really be sure. At that point, all they had to go on was this imposing temple. And the sound of rumblings and the flickering of flames and this ominous music. No wonder I bolted the room. And it didn't help that he thundered at them when they got in. So much for beneficence. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to feel that way about entering the presence of the Almighty. This is a habit of grace. Every Sunday morning, as a church, we link arms and we make our way down a hallway toward the throne room of God. And before we even get there, before we even go in, we hear the sweet, strong voice of our God saying, My children, come. Come and worship. Come into my presence and be blessed by me. Come and receive grace. Providence permitting, as you're able Sunday after Sunday. Don't miss that. It's too good. Because our God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations, including our own. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you and testify that you are the only true and living God, and now you are our God and we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and you are good 
not just right now, but forever. And so how perfectly reasonable and wonderful it is that we should be called to worship. And we pray that you would impress upon us again the weight and the significance of that. That with joy and gladness we would worship you Sunday after Sunday from start to finish from the call to the benediction. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.